You're listening to the Church of the Redeemer Sermon Podcast. Join us at our 10 a.m. worship gathering in Alcoa, Tennessee. Visit us at churchotr.com for more info and to hear other sermons in this series. Since last August, we've been going through the book of Luke, and we're almost done. This is our next to last passage. We looked at Luke 22 through 24 way back in the spring when we went through Holy Week and Easter and following. And so we're going to be ending Luke with a bang. This is an entire chapter of judgment. Yes, oh joy, we get to end with Jesus in Holy Week leading up to his crucifixion. You're going to see why people don't like him very much and they want to put him on a cross uh, by this whole passage of judgment. So we'll do half of Luke 21 this week and half of Luke 21 next week and then we'll be done with the book of Luke. I think it's important to preach through books of the Bible, and one of the reasons that's important is for a chapter like this, because nobody would be excited about preaching this. In our cultural day and time, in 21st century America, nobody gets excited about the Jesus who acts like a judge and, you know, portends judgment. So let's try to take this seriously, and let's also just admit that maybe none of us will be very excited about this, but let's submit to the Master anyway. Luke chapter 21, beginning with verse 1 going all the way through verse 24. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And while some were speaking of the temple how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. He said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And Jesus said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great, excuse me, great distress upon the earth 
and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. Nostradamus. Karl Marx. QAnon. All had massive followings in their time, or currently still, because people like false prophets. Elijah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. None of them had major followings because people don't like true prophets. When I go to your home, there's not a lot of verses of Ezekiel on the wall. No one's like, yes, I'm doing Bible study in Ezekiel and I just love it. People don't like true prophets. Whether it be our favorite political commentators or economists, or maybe it's just yourself, we like false prophets. We don't like true prophets. How much more true of that is when Jesus comes on the scene acting like an Old Testament prophet. Old Testament prophets portended judgment. You're out of accord with God's will. You're an unjust people. Judgment is coming. People don't like true prophets, and it's even more true when Jesus comes on the scene, which is exactly what he does here. He's standing in the line of the Old Testament prophets saying, God's judgment is coming. So let's look this morning at Jesus acting like a prophet by talking about the basis of God's judgment, Jesus acting like a prophet, with the unpredictability of God's judgment, the universal suffering of God's judgment, and the particular suffering of of God's judgment. Four points this morning. First is the basis of God's judgment. The second, the unpredictability of God's judgment. The third, the universal suffering of God's judgment. And fourth, the particular suffering of God's judgment. First, the basis of God's judgment. Beginning in verse 5, other people are speaking about the beautiful temple. It's beautiful three-story colonnades. It's gilded facades, the, the jewels that would have embroidered the temple, the fact that it would have covered about a, a two football fields worth of a architectural complex. There's a lot to be proud of with this second temple that was constructed. And Jesus, in true prophetic fashion, in verse 6, being, brings the doom and gloom. He is a Debbie Downer. In verse 6, where he says, Not one stone that you see in this temple will be left upon another. Not one stone. This temple is going to be destroyed. Now, outside of about a century in Jewish history, in the 500s BC, when the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and then the Jews get to come back at the power of the Persians and rebuild the temple. Outside of about a hundred years of exile and then rebuilding, for a thousand years, the temple stood as the center of Jewish life. It was the very thing that made a Jew a Jew. This is where all the sacrifices happened. All the rules and prescriptions you see in the Old Testament happened at the temple regarding its sacrifices. This was the center of their cultural, religious, and political power. And Jesus says, not one stone will be left upon another. Why does he say this? What's the basis of his judgment? Well, it's everything we looked at in the last two weeks. In Luke 20, 
Jesus is challenged by every cultural power that is, the elites and the crowd, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, every religious or political party that the Jews could muster, none of them like Jesus. They all reject him. And Jesus is saying, when you reject me, guess what happens? God's judgment. When you reject me as the actual true temple, the true cornerstone, he says in Luke 20, I'm the real temple. When you reject me, I'm going to take away what is most precious to you. All the cultural and political power was given to them because of the temple, the center of Jewish life. And Jesus says, when you reject me, my judgment will be to take away what is most precious to you. My old seminary president often told this story about himself. He was a successful seminary president. He was a very good leader. And he became a seminary president because he became a very successful pastor of a large church. And generally, pastors of large churches have a particular skill set. They tend to be very good speakers. They tend to be very good leaders. And it's very easy for them to pat themselves on the back and say, I am doing such a wonderful job. And that's what he would have said about himself. Look at how great I am. Look at how God is using me. And then he became a seminary president and something weird happened. He began to be debilitated in his short-term memory. He didn't lose it altogether, but he, it really was hard for him to keep a lot of thoughts in his head all at once. Where he used to be a magnetic speaker and maintain eye contact all the way through a sermon and people loved him for his charisma, he couldn't do that anymore because he couldn't keep all these thoughts in his head. And by the way, when I'm speaking to you, like I'm two thoughts ahead in my head and my mouth is... Is trying to catch up with the two thoughts ahead in my head, right? And this is what he used to be able to do really well, but then he lost that ability altogether. There was no medical explanation for it. He went to see doctors, see neurologists, everything. There was no explanation for it. And ultimately, he began to see that God was giving him an in-this-life judgment, a disciplining, if you will, because what he had been doing was rejecting Jesus, even by speaking about him and relying upon his own power and his own giftedness. He actually became a very drab speaker, almost having to read directly from his notes and more monotone. God had chastened him. God had taken away the thing that was the most precious to him because ultimately it was a rejection of Jesus in his own life. What about you? What about me? In other places, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, Beware of what is precious to you if it comes before Jesus. For me in my own life, I'm always trying to achieve rest, deep soul rest. I've talked about this a lot with you all. And oftentimes I try to do it without Jesus. And I've even been trying to do that a lot in the last couple of months. And guess what? <laughs> life has gotten harder, less restful, because Jesus is trying to take away from me the very thing that I use to reject him. Does Jesus come behind who you're friends with? Does he come behind how you spend money? Does he come behind how you spend time on social media? Does he come behind your work? Beware of the things you make precious in yourself that come before Jesus. That may be the very thing he wants to take away to get your attention. This is the basis of God's judgment, that they rejected Jesus, the true temple himself. And so Jesus says, I'm going to take the temple away from you. Now let's look at the next point, the unpredictability of God's judgment. Jesus forecasts this 
destruction of the temple and his disciples ask the most natural question in verse 7. When will this happen? And then they ask a second question. What signs will we have that this is about to take place? Now Jesus is noncommittal. Never in Luke chapter 21 does he ever answer the question, when will this happen? The unpredictability remains. He only says there'll be a few signs that'll take place. And then if you pay attention to the signs that he gives his disciples, they're all very nondescript. Look at this. In verse 9, there will be wars and tumults. Well, when in the last 2,000 years have there not been wars and tumults? Even in verse 8, right before it, he says, there'll be false prophets. There'll be people who say they're speaking for me, and there won't be. Well, when has that not been the case? It's just now they get either cable television channels or social media platform. So at this point, we have to ask, okay, what is Jesus talking about that is unpredictable here? Is he talking about just the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem? Or is he talking about the end of time, when Jesus will come on Judgment Day and come again for the final time to execute justice and judgment for all of the world. I'd refer you back to uh, my sermon at the end of Luke 17 for a fuller answer of that. Ultimately, I think the answer is both. Jerusalem and its temple was destroyed in 70 AD, about four decades after Jesus gives this prophecy. It happens. The Romans come in. This is the time of the Gentiles, this non-Jewish nation. And the temple really is destroyed, and it's never been rebuilt since 70 A.D. And I think, and this will get uh, more pronounced next week, because Jesus' language gets more cosmic at the end of Luke chapter 21. And I think Jesus is talking about the end of time, the final judgment. When will that be? Jesus doesn't commit to an answer. God's judgments aren't always imminent. They're not always, like, going to happen right away. But they are always inevitable. God's judgments aren't always imminent, but they are always inevitable. That's because from the perspective of time, all judgments are inevitable, whether you believe in God or not. From the perspective of time, nothing is permanent. Nothing is eternal, right? All of us will die. You could interpret that as a judgment of God or the universe, or you might not have a belief in anything at all, and yet it'll still feel like a judgment when it happens. Our greatest cultural artifacts don't last either. We were reminded of this back in 2018 with the Cathedral Notre Dame in Paris, which had lasted 1,100 years prior to that moment, but a simple fire destroys almost, well, more than half of the cathedral is still being built. And artifacts were lost. There's not architects who know how to build cathedrals like that anymore. There's not stained glass artisans who know how to build the rose window. Those things have been lost. From the perspective of time, all judgments are eternal. Even civilizations pass away. There's no ancient Babylonians anymore. There's no ancient Romans. There's no pharaohs. There's no Ming dynasty. Powerful civilizations that don't last anymore. From the perspective of time, nothing lasts, which is its own inevitable judgment. In other words, just like Jesus' prophecy here, we don't always know when the judgments will happen, but they will happen. From our perspective, we might just call them bad things. Bad things will happen. Now, bad things aren't always the judgment of God, but bad things will happen. So the question for us is, given the unpredictability of God's judgments, do we make allowances for that in our lives? Do we account for the reality that bad things will happen, whether that looks like God's judgment or not? Seems like in American life, most people are just kind of living 
for the next entertainment pleasure. You can also just pretend like only good things will happen. You can believe in a false prosperity gospel that Joel Osteen peddles. You know, the more you believe, the healthier and wealthier you'll get. So bad things won't happen. Well, that's not a good way to live life either. You could have the insouciance of an atheist or agnostic, a a casual indifference, like the matters of ultimate meaning don't really matter. Those don't account for the reality that bad things will happen. Whether it looks like God's judgment or not, bad things will happen. And it feels like Americans are usually the least prepared to acknowledge that future reality. So when bad things are the judgment of God, I think it's important to trust in His goodness and His decision-making. Because otherwise there'd be no way for all wrongs to be made right. If there is going to be an eternal justice, we have to believe and an eternal good God. If we hold out hope that anything could be eternal and last, then we have to hold out hope that God will actually judge things. There's not and can't be an eternal justice if you don't believe in a good God. That's the unpredictability, though. We just don't know when it's going to happen. But when that justice does come, it might not necessarily feel good. Which leads to our third point, the universal suffering of God's judgment. What I want you to see here is that even if there's a particular reason for God's judgment, it affects everyone and it doesn't feel good. The particular reason for judgment here is the rejection of Jesus. And even though not all will reject him, there is a suffering that affects everyone here. Look first at verse 10. Jesus says, nation will rise against nation at the coming judgment of God. A nation here just means a people group. Uh, And, you know, tell me a time in the last 2,000 years where that hasn't happened, where there hasn't been people groups at enmity with one another. In other words, God's judgment has kind of geopolitical significance here. In verse 11, there are natural disasters and pestilences and famines, these things that affect everyone. Certainly the global pandemic we experienced is evidence of that. It might not be anybody's fault in this room, But we all had to experience the suffering related to it. In verse 20, Jesus goes in full prophet mode and says, Jerusalem's going to be surrounded by armies, that destruction is near, and this is going to affect everyone. In verse 21, if people in the countryside, you know, make sure they flee, make sure they don't come into Jerusalem when that time happens. In verse 23, he says, it's going to be bad for pregnant women or nursing mothers who stand here as the symbol of innocence. Like, you know, there's not a lot of bad things a pregnant woman can do in life to, you know, be bad against other people. And Jesus is using them as the symbol of innocence saying, when the judgment comes, it'll even be bad for them. Because when God's judgment comes, it affects people, affects everyone. Many of you have listened to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, about a two-decade-long run of a megachurch that collapsed about seven years ago. The church was started and grown by the giftedness and hubris of the senior pastor, Mark Driscoll. And while the church kept growing, it, it, its influence expanded. Major podcasts, book deals, a conference circuit, even a church planning network that's burst out, birthed out of it that helps start so many other churches. The church's influence dramatically expands. This all happened with an undercurrent of bullying and manipulation and unhealthy leadership at the hands of a few. 
Now, though the problematic culture was only enabled by a few key leaders and kind of worked its way through the system of the church, when the church collapsed, which I believe was God's judgment, it affected everyone, even people whose fault it wasn't. There was so much widespread hurt to people who didn't do anything wrong. Now, I believe God judged it, and one of the reasons he may have judged it is that he was trying to prevent even worse harm to gospel witness by not letting this church's sins flourish any further, to let the church's sins collapse in on itself. And it still affected everyone. There are tens of thousands of people with wounds out there in the world who didn't do anything wrong. So what about us? This universality of suffering and God's judgment means a few things. A few things. The first is that sometimes things that look very strong or big are actually very fragile. Ancient Jerusalem, Mars Hill Church. How about Lehman Brothers in 2008 with the Great Recession and these banks that were too big to fail, doing massively greedy things, and that affected us all if you were born before the year 2008. God judges those things that have the pride to think they're too big to fail, and when he does, it'll affect us all. The next thing is that when you suffer in God's judgment, it doesn't have to be your fault. Sometimes you might just be caught in the crosshairs, and it feels bad. It doesn't feel good, which leads to the next thing. When you suffer in God's judgment, it's important to trust God. He may know better than you. He does know better than you. So he knows what the future would have been like if he didn't judge, if he didn't correct wrongs. And it may have been worse than what you're enduring now. So sometimes you just have to trust in the goodness of God that he knows what he's doing, that he knows what the alternate future would have been like, and that the judgment you're experiencing right now, even if it's not your fault, past or present, is actually some way a restraining grace of God. That's the universal suffering, that when God brings a judgment, it does affect us all, and it doesn't feel good. The last point this morning is that there's a particular suffering of Jesus' followers. If there's a universal suffering that affects everybody in God's judgment, there's also a particular suffering, and this is uh, arguably feels worse. Oh, joy. Uh, Jesus' followers follow Jesus. Jesus was perfect, and Jesus died a Roman execution facing God's judgment on the cross. Those who follow Jesus should not expect any better. If you're a follower of Jesus, you should expect to follow in his footsteps. He didn't do anything wrong, and he faced God's judgment as well. Jesus is so bold to say this, beginning in verse 12. Before all this, before this time of the destruction of Jerusalem, this historical judgment that happens in 70 AD, Jesus says, hey, guess what? For my name's sake, you're going to be brought before governors and kings. This actually happens in Acts, beginning in Acts 4 and 5, just not that far after Jesus ascends into heaven. They begin to face persecution at the hands of Jewish leaders. Happens for Paul later in the book of Acts with Roman trials. Verse 13, Jesus says, you will bear witness about me. This is where we get the word martyr from. The word bear witness is in Greek, the word martyrios. And when Jesus says you'll bear witness, he really means to the disciples, 
you're going to die a martyr's death, all of them but one. John is the only one who doesn't. They all die a martyr's death. So that can make it, verse 18 and 19 confusing when Jesus says, not a hair of your head will perish. And there Jesus is being eternal or futurist in his perspective. No, you're actually going to die. Everybody's going to die. But the martyr, especially in the book of Revelation, has a privileged place. So at the resurrection of Jesus, when we'll all get renewed bodies that trust in Christ, they will, these martyrs will have this privileged place. Not a hair of their head will perish. And verse 19 says, by endurance they will have gained their lives. Literally, they'll have recovered their souls. Right there. Jesus encourages his disciples in verses 14 and 15 not to premeditate when they get put on trial. Just like Jesus will get put on trial in the very next chapter in the book of Luke. Don't premeditate your answer. Sometimes Jesus doesn't answer at all. Sometimes he does answer. And he tells his disciples to do the same thing. If you compare Jesus' persecution at his trial to his disciples in Acts, it's an interesting comparison because the disciples end up saying more usually, being very bold, whereas Jesus tended to say less. In verse 16, Jesus says, there'll be treachery and betrayal even at the hands of beloved family members. And in verse 17, he says, you will be hated for my namesake. It's the second time he uses that phrase, for my namesake, for my reputation, for my character, you'll be hated. You'll be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, he says, take up your cross and follow me. One of the biggest shocks of the Gospels is that Jesus meant it literally, and none of his disciples died on the cross with him. So if we are going to follow Jesus, that's the kind of life we should expect. It's also true of us. 1 Peter 4, 17 that we read says that judgment begins with the house of God. If Jesus says, I'm the new temple, this temple is going to be destroyed because I'm the new temple who will be destroyed and raised again in three days, Then the metaphor transfers to the people of God, that by the time the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us, we are the new temple. We are the house of God, and judgment begins with us. And then in verse 19 of 1 Peter 4, Peter goes on to say, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In fact, the whole logic of Scripture is that God's people don't get to escape judgment. If you're a Christian, Jesus took your suffering of judgment on you, from you on the cross but we still face it in fact you could look at the book of exodus you could look at uh the book of isaiah and even here when god brings judgment he brings it on his people first this is one of the reasons i don't believe in a rapture like this idea that oh the people of god jesus is going to come and invisibly take them away and they won't have to face the hard things which is not the logic of scripture god's people face the judgment first just like a good parent Pretend your kid, if you're a parent, your kid gets in real trouble. They actually did something wrong and they're with their friends. Who are you going to be harder on? You're going to be harder on your own kid because they belong to you. Because you actually care about their good. You don't just care about their happy feelings. You want the good in them. And you're not harder on them because you love them less. You're harder on them because you love them more. And this is how God treats his own kids. Hey, guess what? If you're going to follow Jesus, this is what you can expect. So on the receiving end, as God's children, how do we do that? How do we receive the judgment that comes from our God? One way is the Psalms of lament. God gives us language with which to pray back to him when we are suffering. 
Even if it's not our fault, even if we're just facing God's judgment for following Jesus. Uh, that was a weird phrase. I want to say that better. When I, I just mean that Jesus' followers, just as Jesus says here, will face persecution, suffering. And sometimes we just face that because we follow Jesus. And God gives us the prayer language of anguish and questions and hurt that we are allowed to pray back to him in Psalms of Lament, something like Psalm 13 or Psalm 42. Where are you, God? How long will I have to endure this? Jeremiah, one of the prophets I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, he wrote beautiful poetry as a response. And it became the book of Lamentations. As a response to the destruction of Jerusalem and the judgment that he had to endure He sits down and writes five chapters of beautiful poetry in Hebrew. It's in an acrostic, so every line begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And he took the time to actually craft art in the midst of his suffering. Another way to be on the receiving end of suffering as God's people is the picture of whom Jesus praises at the beginning of our passage. He praises a a widow who has no money and she gives out of her poverty and says she's given more than anyone else in verse 4. I think Jesus is saying that those in poverty know suffering, and therefore they can give to God anyway. Jeremiah gave out of his imaginative poverty. He saw a completely destroyed Jerusalem, and if you read the book of Lamentations, there's some pretty grim imagery of the things that he saw, and yet he still wrote poetry. He gave out of his poverty. Maybe you could give out of your poverty. Maybe you're, you're in an emotional poverty right now, and one of the ways you give out of your poverty is to listen really well to someone else. Maybe you're dealing with an energy poverty, and God is calling you to help others. Maybe you're dealing with a schedule poverty, and God is calling you to carve out some time for the sake of others or for the sake of Him. When suffering... What does it look like as God's people to give out of our poverty? I think the same concept is at work when Jesus says, don't premeditate your defense. I want you to be so impoverished that I'm the only thing you have left to rely on and then give out of that. What could possibly give you that kind of power and the kind of poverty that we face? It's this. Knowing that whatever suffering you are facing, whether it's God's judgment or not, Jesus too faced it. He is God's child, first and principally. He is God the Son, and he faced the judgment on the cross. In the middle of Luke 20, he calls himself the stone the builders rejected, and now the chief cornerstone. He's the true temple, as I've been saying, and he's the true place where the greater sacrifice is made. To receive the judgment of God, to take from us our sin, our rebellion, even our ignorance. To say, I want you to be returned back to me. Jesus is also the true Jerusalem who is encircled and destroyed for our sakes. Jesus warns of the coming judgment because he faced it himself on the cross. And he wants us to be spared ultimate or eternal judgment, which we can be through trust in him. When you find it hard to trust in God in the midst of your suffering that you didn't cause, when you find it hard to pray your lament, or when you find it hard to give out of your own poverty, remember that Jesus is the one who gave out of his poverty for you. Let's pray. Our Father, um, we don't 
We know we don't need a persecution complex and see persecution around every rock. And we know that we are blessed to live in this country and have the freedoms to believe that we do. And yet, Lord, help us to endure when we do suffer for Jesus' name. Help us to have wisdom and grace. Help us to follow Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you can join us next week. God bless and have a great week.